morning is to rise early and to open up my iPad and to type something that I am grateful for. Some of you have been doing that over the years and would encourage you to continue to do that. And I just wanted to give you a little window into into my heart this morning and, and share with you the experience that I had as I reviewed my notes for Veritas and as we learned about the inheritance that is ours in Christ and as I reviewed for the sermon uh, this morning in the book of Romans, I was just um, overwhelmed with the responsibility and the privilege to to herald the word of God and overwhelmed with with what's happening at this church. Does anyone see it? I mean, something is is happening that is is really, really special. And so I anticipate uh, great things in the weeks and the months and the years to come. And just want to encourage each of you from the youngest person to the oldest person to keep digging deeper and growing stronger all to the glory of God. I want to invite you to open your, your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Some of you are very familiar with those opening lines from the classic story, A Tale of Two Cities by the British writer Charles Dickens. In Dickens' opening lines from this well-known story, he uses his words sparingly and strategically to contrast between the very best of times and the very worst of times. He contrasts wisdom with foolishness. He contrasts belief or faith with incredulity, light and darkness, hope and despair. And I see that the Apostle Paul employs a similar strategy as he essentially contrasts two worldviews that are diametrically opposed to each other. It was the spring of 1986. I was a 19-year-old freshman at Multnomah University. And I had no idea that as I stepped into this classroom with my tennis coach, Hugh Salisbury, who was also the evangelism professor, that on this particular day, my life would be changed forever. I sat down on my seat and I remember Hugh standing up at the whiteboard and he wrote a word that was absolutely riveting. It was a word that I had never heard before, but it is a word that if I were to estimate that since that spring day in 1986, I have uttered that word, no question, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I might say it a hundred more times during this message. You never know. The word that Hugh Salisbury wrote on the whiteboard was the word worldview. Worldview. And as he introduced the the notion of a Christian worldview in particular, everything began to crystallize for me as a 19-year-old Bible college student. And so from that point on until this day, I have I have spent hours upon hours, days upon days. Not only studying the Christian worldview, most importantly, but also studying the other worldviews in our culture. I didn't know that when I stepped into the classroom that day that I was about to become a worldview guy. A worldview guy. That's what some people have labeled me over the years because they know that I I love the notion of a worldview. What is it? A worldview is how you perceive 
reality. That's the, the general definition. But it's more specific when we dig a little bit deeper. The late Ronald Nash defines a worldview like this. A worldview is a conceptual scheme that contains our fundamental beliefs. It also is the means by which we interpret and judge reality. I want you to remember this morning, even if it's the first time you've heard that phrase, worldview, or if you have even uttered the word worldview, no matter who you are, whether you're religious or not religious, a Christian or not a Christian, a pagan or wherever you stand, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. And what I've learned over the years is that more often than not, a person comes to the table with a particular worldview and that person has not examined his or her preconceived notions or presuppositions. It is the role of the apologist, it is the role of the evangelist to challenge the underlying assumptions of a pagan or an ungodly or an unbiblical worldview. Worldviews, you see, function like a pair of sunglasses. When you put on a pair of sunglasses, all of a sudden, one act changes almost miraculously how you perceive reality. Now, theologically and philosophically, if you put on the wrong pair of worldview glasses... For instance, if you put on a pair of worldview glasses and your worldview says, I don't believe God exists, that will have a profound impact on the way that you not only perceive reality, it will have an impact on the way that you live your life. The worldview that you believe, the pair of glasses that you put on will have a radical implication on how you live your daily life. It will affect how you think. It will affect how you reason. It will have an impact on how you live. Now, on the other hand, if you choose to put on the right pair of worldview glasses, it will also affect how you live and how you think. And we will see this play out this morning in our message. But remember this, not only does every person have a worldview, No human is religiously neutral. It is impossible for a person to be religiously neutral. Every person comes to the table with a set of assumptions and pre-commitments. Some examples. You believe in God. You don't believe in God. There's another worldview that you're familiar with most likely. It's the worldview of agnosticism. You're not sure if you believe in God. Another worldview would be something like this. You you believe in the word of God. Many of you, if not most of you, you embrace a worldview this morning where you say, I believe in the word of God. And then you begin to drill down. If I were to ask you, what do you believe about about the authority of Scripture? What do you believe about the inerrancy of Scripture? What do you believe about the infallibility of Scripture? What do you believe about the perspicuity of Scripture? You say, I have no idea what that means. Do you believe that Scripture is clear? You would say, absolutely, I believe that Scripture is clear. And so you bring your commitments to the table. But others of you say, you know, I, I think this is a... A good book, it's an interesting book, it contains some fascinating stories, but I I, I don't believe everything. Some of you might say, I don't believe anything. I came with my friend to appease him or her. I'm trying to be a nice guy. You may be here this morning and believe that Jesus is the Savior. You may believe that Jesus is merely a moral teacher. You may believe that Jesus was a lunatic. It was C.S. Lewis who, who coined that, that, that famous argument that Jesus is one of three things. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. And Lewis was exactly right about that. One writer says that human beings are never neutral with regard to God. Either we worship God as creator and Lord, or we turn away from God. He goes on and says, people should be encouraged to dig below the surface and uncover the basic philosophical 
and religious presuppositions that appear to control their thinking, close quote. And that's exactly what we plan to do in our text today. The title of the message is The Tale of Two Worldviews. And I want to have you read this passage with me as we stand to our feet, beginning in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. If you're a guest with us this morning, feel free to grab a pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. That's our guest to you from Christ Fellowship. We'll be reading in that pew Bible on page 941. This is God's word, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Pray with me. What a blessing it is, Holy Father, to open your word. What an honor it is to to stand out of respect for your holy word. We are delighted to, to open it, to read it, to meditate upon the great truth, to explore the deeper realities of the gospel. And as it emerged this morning, I, I, I thank you once again for the privilege to proclaim your word. I thank you for the privilege to be friends with these people. I thank you for the privilege of meeting new people. And there are no question people are here who are not followers of Christ. What an honor it is to have them with us. And I pray that uh, you would impact someone today with the power of sacred scripture. And so, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you edify us? Would you challenge us? Would you stretch us? Would you cause us to think outside our comfortable boxes so that we would be changed forever? In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, to make things super, super simple, we want to see the two worldviews that unfold in our passage. Now, as a disclaimer, many of you already realize this, there are, there are really a, a pantheon of worldviews that exist in our culture. But as I, as I studied this passage in verse 4 to 8 in Romans chapter 4, what I saw in a crystal clear way is two overarching worldviews that emerge. The first worldview is one that is characterized by toil, T-O-I-L. The worldview that is characterized by toil. The second worldview is the worldview that is characterized by trust. And it was fascinating for me because one of my great fascinations and and hobbies and enjoyments over the years since that spring in 1986 is to learn not only about the Christian worldview, but to learn about other worldviews. What does a given worldview believe about God? What does a given worldview believe about authority? What does a given worldview believe about men and women, about people? What does a given worldview believe about eternity? What does a given worldview believe about salvation? And so we can go week after week after week. We can spend the rest of our lives exploring all the manifold worldviews. But what Paul does here is he essentially encapsulates all those worldviews into two. So I want to introduce those worldviews to you and show the radical implications of both of them. I want to contrast them for you and begin with the first worldview that I mentioned, and that is the worldview that is characterized by toil. And when I say that the worldview is characterized by toil, what I'm referring to is the worldview that you would denote as the worldview of humanism. This is the the pagan worldview. 
This is the worldview that is man-centered, not God-centered. And I want to have you look with me on the screen and also compare this to your Bible to Romans chapter 4, verse 4. And pay careful attention to what Paul is doing here. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. The way I want to unpack that is to have you think with me about an image, if you will. I think that we are an image culture. I know pastors, and actually, to be honest, most of my heroes, pastors who I love and respect, have, for whatever reason, a problem with PowerPoint, most of the men that I respect just, they, they just don't do PowerPoint. And the reason, it seems like I would go along with my heroes. The reason I, I break with my heroes is that I believe that we are a visual culture. That we are a culture that we, we see things with our eyes. And when we see it with our eyes, it, it sinks deeply into our hearts and into our brains. And eventually comes out our, our fingertips and, and the, the tips of our toes. And we apply the word of God. And so, no disrespect to my heroes. We want to use visuals to drive home the truth of the word of God. And so here's the visual I would commend to you for a moment. It's the visual of the city of man. The city of man. And you might imagine that the city of man is is filled with a a variety of of implications. And I want to share three very important implications of the city of man. And I trust that as we do this, the light may go on for you. And especially for young people, those of you in the first two rows, that you'll, you'll begin to see that, oh man, like I, I see that in my science class. I see that in my philosophy class. I see it in English literature. I, I, I see these things in what my, my teacher is, is telling me. There are three things by way of practical implication that arrive in the city of man. These are at the very center of the city of man. Number one, in the city of man, meaning, meaning, that is meaning for my life is self-determined. Meaning is self-determined. What's it look like? If it is to be, it's up to me. Man is the final arbiter of truth. It was the French philosopher René Descartes. Who uttered these words that have reverberated from from the point he uttered the words until this very moment. He said, man is the measure. You see, meaning in the city of God is all self-determined. Move from meaning to morality. In the city of man, morality is also self-determined. What do I mean? It means man sets the rules. It means Man sets the laws. It means man establishes the boundaries. Frank Sinatra helped us here. I did it my way. Not only is meaning self-determined, but morality is self-determined. Don't tell me, the man in the city of man says, how I should live my life. Some of you are here and you're not Christians and you were just... You're just sweating bullets because you know it's coming. You know that the preacher is going to tell you, stop living that way. This is how you should live. And deep within the heart of the city of man is a a young man or a young woman or a a middle-aged man or a middle-aged woman that says, you can't tell me how to live. And you know what's funny about that? You don't have any problem with me. And so I don't take it personally. You have a problem with the living God. Who says, I am the Lord of the universe. I determine meaning in life. I determine morality in life. There's a third thing that we find in the city of man. It involves destiny. And believe it or not, destiny in the city of man is self-determined. That is, mankind determines his future. Mankind charts his path. When I was about 25 years of age... 
And people begin to ask me, what are the books that have influenced your life? And I remember one person, actually a woman who just went to be with the Lord, a friend of mine in LaGrange. She says, Pastor Dave, what are the top 10 books in your life? And so I, I took some, it was, it was difficult. It was rough to pick out the top 10. And what has happened is over the years, that has morphed into the top, I've lost track, 36, I think it is. I've got like 35 or 36 books that these are the books that if I were on a desert island, Outside of the word of God, which is numero uno, right? These are the books that I would take on a desert island. I'd be perfectly happy. One of those books is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Haddon Spurgeon read it over a hundred times, died in his mid-fifties. He read it over and over and over again. Here's what we see in the Pilgrim's Progress. The lead character by the name of Christian, he, those of you that have read it, know very well, he, he flees from the city of destruction. And once he leaves the city of destruction as an unconverted young man, he makes his way to the foot of the cross eventually where the burden of sin, literally, it's my favorite part in the whole book, it just drops off his back and his, his guilt is gone. His sins are gone. He's been forgiven. He's been liberated. He's no longer a slave of sin. He's a new man in Christ. And from the very moment he is liberated, from the very moment where he comes to the foot of the cross and is forgiven of all his sin, he he sets his face to the celestial city. And the whole rest of the book, that's all he's intent on doing. And along the way, he meets meets various obstacles and characters and people that want to deter him on his journey to the celestial city. But the thought struck me. It is not Christian who determined his path. It is not Christian who charted his path. It was God and God alone who said, Christian, you head to the celestial city. You head to the celestial city. And so mankind, on the other hand, in the city of man, he charts his own path. He determines his future. In the city of man, salvation comes as a result of my efforts. That's what happens in the city of man. And I want to share with you how this is played out by looking at several different worldviews or world religions. The first one, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormonism. What I want to do with each of these world religions is just give you a snapshot And to help you to see how a person in this world religion reaches either heaven or nirvana or the place of rest or whatever they may call it. In the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, there's a rigid equation whereby one makes it to the third heaven, as they say. And here it is. Faith plus baptism, plus obedience to the laws and ordinances of the Mormon church, plus good works, plus membership in the Mormon church equals salvation. I hope you see the folly of that worldview. Move with me from Mormonism to the Watchtower Society or Jehovah's Witnesses. The formula for salvation is threefold. Be baptized as a Jehovah's Witness, study with Jehovah's Witnesses, and we all know this one, go door to door. Please understand, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and knocks on your door or rings your doorbell, when you open the door, that is one-third of how they hope to be saved, as we would say, by witnessing. I hope you see that that threefold formula for salvation i hope you see the 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 profound error that lies within move with me to islam the muslim worldview sin and salvation are associated with two concepts work and fate the muslim system of salvation like jehovah's witnesses and like mormonism is based on works this is one that could get me in hot water but i'm going to include it in this list The Roman Catholic Church. You say, Pastor, why would you include Roman Catholicism with those other world religions? Well, the first aspect of justification Rome has taught for hundreds of years is when man is moved by God. The second aspect of justification occurs, and listen carefully, as man 
progresses in good works and merits, 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 grace needed to attain eternal life. What does that sound like? It sounds like works-based salvation, and I hope you see the absurdity of that worldview. And so Mormonism, the Watchtower Society, Islam, Roman Catholicism, I want to add a fifth one that I know you've all heard of but didn't realize it was a religion or a worldview, and that is the American religion. The American religion. And it goes something like this, and I must tell you that what I'm going to read right now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this from people. Well-meaning people, good people, People that looked good and smelled good and had degrees and were educated and were sharp and had their lives together. Their lives seem almost perfect. And they say this, I try my best to be, I bet you've talked to him or her too. I try my best to be a, you know him too. This is American religion. I do my best to be a good person. I talked to a person once who said, I try my best to be a good person. I read the Bible as often as I can. I do my best to go to church. I put money in the offering plate from time to time. I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds in the final analysis. This is someone going to a Bible teaching evangelical church. And I looked my friend in the eye and I said this. What you just said is no different than what a Muslim would tell me. The only difference is the Muslim's ultimate standard of authority is the Quran. You claim your standard of authority is scripture. And it was his, his, his mouth opened larger than the wide mouth frog. He couldn't believe I said it. But my friend had embraced American religion. And we're being consumed by it. It is, it is the mighty python that is consuming people and strangling people. American religion is sending people to final judgment. I try my best to be a good person. And so in the city of man, it is, it is me that works for salvation. It is me that earns my salvation. And in the final analysis in the city of man, we need to recognize this. In the city of man, it is me that becomes my own personal savior. I am my own personal savior. Go with me again to Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but his due. Why is it impossible then for sinners to save themselves? Well, because of his sin, he's never able to measure up to God's holy standard, nor would he ever desire to measure up to God's holy standard. None of our works are capable of atoning for our sins. If sinners could save themselves, please understand that the glory of God would be obscured. This is the worldview that is characterized by toil, and it is sweeping across our nation. Indeed, the worldview that is characterized by toil is sweeping around the globe, leaving people stranded and trapped in its godless ideology. If you subscribe to the worldview characterized by toil, and I suspect that some of you do, there is a scripture that accurately describes your current and your eternal condition. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. You see, this is one I'm deeply concerned about because it doesn't sound scary, does it? To say I'm a good person, I work hard to, to do what's right before God. And I go to church and I put a, some money in the offering plate and I, I even tell people about God from time to time. I sure hope I do enough. It's one that we need to be very wary of and realize that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. But there's another worldview that Paul speaks of that begins in verse 5. And this is the worldview that is characterized by trust. 
Just trust. This is what we would refer to as historic Christianity. Look at verse 5. I believe we have this on the screen as well for you. And to the one who does not work. Stop right there. Doesn't that just floor you? Joe, can you imagine if you went to work this week and your boss said, stop working. The one who does not work, he'd be like, whoa, I need to support my family, right? This is just, this is like the definition of being counterintuitive. Or Paul says, to the one that does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Come with me now into the city of God. And compare the worldview in the city of God or the worldview characterized by trust to the worldview characterized by toil in the city of man. Three things. In the city of God, first and foremost, meaning is determined by God. Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Can you, can you hear the echoes of the person in the city of man? Can you hear what they would say to the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I set the parameters of meaning. I set the parameters of meaning. Second, in the city of God, morality is determined by God. How do we know what is right? How do we know what is wrong? God sets the parameters. Jesus said in John 3, To Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By the way, for those of you who have unconverted family members and friends and you share the gospel with them and they look at you like you're a Martian. This is the reason for that, because unless they're born again, they won't even see it. And please don't take this wrong way. They will be like Stevie Wonder. That didn't land with anyone. You share the gospel with your friend and they, they, they don't see it. They're, 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 they're blind to the truth of the gospel. And so we are patient with them. We care for them. We love them. But we continue to press the truth of the gospel on their lives. Number three, in the city of God, destiny is determined by God. Jesus said in John 14, I In the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are some defining features of the person who resides in the city of God. And I I hope you're discovering these in your, your journey into God. First, this person understands that good deeds will never cut it with God. I begin to understand that that my man made so-called righteousness will will never cut it with God. Number two, this person acknowledges that they are ungodly and that they fall short of God's holy standard. So we acknowledge our ungodliness. In the city of God, this person, and this may be the key of the text, this person trusts the works of another. They trust the works of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ who died On the cross for sinners. Number four, this person is declared righteous by God. We've learned about this great reality in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. And finally, as we will see in a moment, this person's faith is counted as righteousness. I lost track how many times Paul writes the word counted in Romans chapter 4. It comes from a Greek phrase, which is an accounting word. It's a word that that means our account has been credited with righteousness, namely the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Abraham believed God and was counted righteous, so too does every person who trusts in Jesus and his work on the cross. This is radical news for the person in the city of man. If you're in the city of man, please hear what I'm saying. The word of God says, stop Working, stop toiling and trust in Jesus. Stop toiling and begin to trust. And my prayer is that you will see the radical differences in these worldviews. Because the differences between toil and trust are like night and day. They're like 
night and day. For the person who subscribes to the worldview characterized by toil will be judged for their sin eternally. The person who subscribes to the worldview characterized by trust will know the blessing of eternal life and will enjoy life with God in heaven eternally. And that is exactly what Paul does next as he commends the justified. And Ken said earlier that I, I'll just put it this way, was getting excited in Veritas this morning. So slap on your seatbelts because it's about to happen again. As Paul commends the justified. Look at verses 6 to 8 with me. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Go back up to Romans chapter 4 verse 1. And remember with me how Paul used Abraham as an illustration of justification by faith alone. God uses Paul to point to Abraham as one who was a pagan idol worshiper, who God justified, who God acquitted, who God pronounced not guilty on the basis of his faith alone. In verse 6, he uses David to illustrate the great practical benefits of justification. We've already seen how being justified means that we have right standing with God. Now Paul moves one step further and points to David. And he shows us how the justified person is showered with blessing. Stop right there. Blessing. Would you agree with me that the word blessing in American culture is is loaded with presuppositions? We, We use the word blessing all the time. We say, God bless you. We say, bless you. We say, have a blessed life. You see it on greeting cards. You hear people, Christian people and non-Christian people, using the terminology of what it means to be blessed. But I want you to think carefully about this word. I want you to think about how the world, how our ungodly culture uses the notion of blessing. And in order to do that, I would like for you to participate In a short little exercise, I promise not to embarrass anyone. According to the worldly system that we live in, what, and if you would take just a moment to to write down as fast as you can, what are the key components of a person who is numbered among the blessed? Put it this way. If you went down to the mall in Bellingham, And you are on the lookout for the blessed person. What would the profile of blessing look like? This is what the world sees blessing to be. Let me give you a few ideas. The world says that the blessed person is a person of power. The world says that the blessed person has Possession after possession after possession. That was probably the first one on some of your lists. How many wrote down possessions? They're the blessed ones. You see a person get out of a a Lexus, right? And they're heading into the store. And they're going to buy a lot of expensive clothes. And so they have possessions at their disposal. They have prosperity. They have property. They have prestige. Here's one that is at the center of American culture. They have physical fitness. This guy's in shape. This guy has money. He has possessions. He has a Lexus. He must certainly be experiencing the blessing of God. Simply put, the benchmarks for blessedness in the eyes of the world is radically different than what we see described in scripture the focus for the world when we think about what it means to be blessed is all external it's all external 
Paul commends the person now who is justified, and he commends them by calling them. Do you see it in verse 7? By calling them blessed. Also in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The way I want to tackle this as we close is to look, first of all, at the meaning of blessing. The meaning of blessing. It comes from a a Greek word that is found throughout the pages of the New Testament. And it's a word that is translated, and I hope this strikes you as, as interesting and profound. Blessed means, quote, a declaration that a person has favored status with God that results in a happy estate. Or simply put, the blessed person has favor with God, and is super, super happy. And remarkably, I've discovered, there are large numbers of people that recoil, even Christian people who recoil at the very thought of a blessed life. A prime example of this is found in this saying. This is a saying that if you ever want to see me get really, really animated and in a bad mood, just say this to me. It, oh, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Oh, ugh. You say, well, that sounds pretty good to me. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Listen, to be holy is to experience greatest happiness you could ever experience in any lifetime. And so it's a false dichotomy. We need to pulverize the notion that happiness is not something that followers of Christ should desire or obtain. And I have discovered this. There are a lot of unhappy Christians walking around there. Have you met some of them? And I think it's because they bought into the lie that God doesn't want me to be happy. He just wants him to be holy and make sure that my tie's straight and make sure that my, my pants are on right. Make sure that my shoes are tied and I cross all my T's and dot all my I's. You remember the words of Jared Wilson? The essence of the Christian faith is not behave, but behold. Behold. We've gotten it so wrong. And so we pulverize the notion that happiness is not something that followers of of Jesus should desire or obtain. One Puritan writer says this, What joy is there in being with Christ? How happy are they that enjoy the fountain if some small streams are so pleasant? Randy Alcorn in his book Happiness said, Happiness in God is never an idol because by definition it recognizes God as God and is grounded in Him and in the gospel of Jesus. If you struggle with the notion of happiness, I would beg you to read Randy Alcorn's book Happiness that never really took off and never got popular. And it's almost a travesty. It is a book that is a... Is a, is a Absolutely incredible book. Now notice with me the marks of the blessed person. And these all emerge in verses 7 and 8. And I hope this just astonishes you. And I hope if you're a believer and you've been a a Christian for years and years and years. That you'll never get tired of seeing this. That every time you see it you get more excited. Number one, our lawless deeds are forgiven. Amen? Lawlessness, the state of being in open defiance of the law. Before we were Christians, we were the lawless ones. Each one of us has a track record of lawlessness. Yet to all who believe in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, they are forgiven. Verse 7, his lawless deeds are forgiven. That's a word that means to be pardoned. To be exempt from the legal consequences of an offense. We looked at this section of scripture in Veritas a few moments ago in Titus chapter 2 that says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. My friends, the first mark of a blessed man or woman is that his lawless deeds are forgiven. Her lawless deeds are forgiven. Secondly, also in verse 7, Paul says our sins are covered. That is, our sins, literally in the Greek, it means that they have been veiled. They have been covered. They have been forgiven. In Christ, all our sins are covered by his precious blood. Finally, verse 8. The third mark of the blessed person. Our sins have been canceled. Do you remember the word that I made reference to? The word count in verse 5. It is the word logizomai in the Greek. That means to reckon or count or to impute to someone's account. Paul says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It was the commentator John Stott who said, the reformers were surely right. When God justifies sinners, he does not make them righteous For that is the consequent process of sanctification. But he pronounces them righteous or imputes righteousness to them, reckoning them to be and treating them as righteous. So think with me now. Over the many years of your life, think of the the countless sins that you have committed. Sins in word, sins in thought, Sins in deed, sins in motive that you never actually carried out. Or think of the ones that you did carry out. Each of us has committed an infinite number of sins. And if a holy God looks at your life and views one sin, just one sin, not to mention the the thousands and thousands and thousands of sins that we have all committed. If God viewed one sin... If you have not trusted Christ, he would hold that one sin against you and you would be judged for all eternity. Now go back to verse 5 just for a moment. Where Paul says, And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteousness. If you cast your hope upon Christ, the Christ who is promised in Scripture, your sin is is counseled, canceled rather. Every person who places his or her faith and trust in Jesus is justified, is acquitted. Each person who is justified then is blessed beyond measure. Go back to the Bellis Fair Mall. Now you have a totally different worldview when you think about the blessed person. It has nothing to do with clothing. It has nothing to do with a car. It has nothing to do with possessions. It has nothing to do with education or relationships or anything else. It has everything to do with verses 7 and 8. Are your lawless deeds forgiven? Are your sins covered? And does the Lord count sin against you? For the person who subscribes to the worldview characterized by toil, that person will be judged for all eternity. And the person who subscribes to the worldview characterized by trust will know the blessing of eternal life and will enjoy life with God in heaven eternally. And the beautiful thing is, you know when that eternal life starts? It starts the minute you believe. You begin to experience heaven now and you will experience the glories of heaven When you breathe your last. I want to leave you with three takeaways. Three pithy sayings that you can take out of here to encourage you to live for the glory of God. Number one, stop toiling and start trusting. I'm not suggesting that you stop working. I'm not suggesting that you leave your job. I am suggesting that you stop trying to earn favor in the eyes of a holy God. Lighting a candle, praying the rosary, knocking on someone's door, putting $20 in the offering plate. None of those things will merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. And so stop toiling and start trusting. Number two, stop working and start worshiping. Stop working and start worshiping. And number three, stop behaving 
and start beholding. Do you know how dangerous that sentence is? I can, I can just read the minds of parents of teenagers. You're like, the pastor just told my 14-year-old son to stop behaving and start beholding. But you know what happens, mom? You know what happens, dad? When your teenage son beholds the living God, guess what happens? He's transformed. Where all those things that you have been struggling with, that he has been struggling with, when he beholds the living God, all of a sudden, behavior begins to kick in. It was John MacArthur who said, when a penitent sinner is confronted by the majesty of power and justice of God, he cannot help seeing his own lostness and the worthlessness of his own works. That's the definition of a paradigm shift. There comes time in each of our lives when I believe we just need to face the music as it were. You can have power, possessions, property, prestige, and even physical fitness. You can have all those things and still be lost. And so the tale of two worldviews calls upon each of us to make a crucial commitment and a sobering commitment. Will we commit ourselves to the city of man and work for God's favor and be judged for all eternity? Or will we commit ourselves, as Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress, to the city of God and follow the example of Abraham and David and trust God, Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This morning, I call each person, I plead with you to to bank all your hope and future exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ and his mighty work on the cross. When you do that, then and then alone will you experience the the joy of salvation, and be numbered among those who are blessed. Let's pray. Father, I never, be, I never cease to be amazed at the, the power of your word. I never cease to be amazed at the, the practicality of your word. Lord, we are reminded of the power of the gospel this morning. We thank you. That those who have trusted Christ and turned from their sins, that they have been delivered from not only the penalty of sin, but they have been delivered from the power of sin. We hear that on a weekly basis, but one day we'll be set free from sin's very presence. So thank you, as Jason prayed earlier, thank you for all that you have accomplished in the gospel, Lord Jesus. Help us to be a people who behold the living God, and when we behold how glorious you are, life transformation cannot help but take place. Father, I pray for teenagers this morning, that they would begin beholding the glory of God. I pray for single people, that they would begin beholding the glory of God. I pray for moms and dads and grandpas and grandpas, grandpas and grandmas, that they too would begin beholding the holiness of God and life transformation would set in or continue. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for transforming us. May we leave a people who are changed all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.